Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, we thank you that you have not only created us, but you have called us to yourself. Lord, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you, Lord, that we can rejoice in all things. We praise you and we ask this in the powerful name of Christ and the people of God said, amen. We live in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. Ambiguity is essentially now a virtue. Sexual freedom has become the religion of the land. This is the deception of our historical epoch, that your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. You see, since the fall of Adam and Eve, the human heart has set itself in defiance against God's perfect ways. And yet, this idolatry of sexual freedom is on a collision course with the gospel, as my life was on a collision course with the gospel. So I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but my parents raised me with very traditional Asian values, and I could distill that to three things. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. (laughs) You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house, at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet, and I began living openly as a gay man. So after about a year of dental school, I decided to go home and break the news to my parents, and I told them, I am gay. It was my self-declaration. And my mom, kind of your typical... Chinese mother, Tiger Mom. She tried to control the situation and she gave me an ultimatum and she said, you must either choose the family or choose that. Well, for me, this was not a choice. This is who I am. And I told her, if you can't accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. So I left home and I went back to Louisville. Devastated my mom. She says, news of my, of coming out was rejection. And she says, it, was ev- it would have been better than receiving news of my death. The timing couldn't have been any worse. After years of unresolved issues, after years of living as non-Christians, my parents' marriage was a disaster, and they actually began the paperwork for divorce. 
So my mom was literally at the end of a rope and she found no more reason to live. And on the next day, she had resolved to do the unthinkable. She was going to end her life. Amazingly, she felt this need to go see a minister. Remember, she's not a Christian. And this minister gave a little booklet on homosexuality. So my mother bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville. Not round trip, she wasn't coming back. One-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville where she planned to say goodbye to me for the last time before ending it all. She boarded on the train with only her purse and that little booklet, thinking that death was the only answer to all her problems. Never being much of a reader, on the train she began reading this pamphlet which shared with her the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners. And yet, in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves her. And God opened up the eyes of her heart to see that just as God can love her in spite of her sin, she could love me, her gay son. And so on this train, my mother gave her life to Christ. See, my mother went to Louisville, Kentucky, expecting to end her life. And in reality, she did. One of her favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ living in them prepared my parents for the difficult years ahead as I headed further and further away from God. So I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, to be really clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are promiscuous. Some do, some don't, but that definitely is part of my story. And when I tell you it, I have to be honest, and I need to tell you my whole story, but I also need to be honest in telling you that when you encounter Jesus, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I was poor. <laughs> and, if was, if, and if I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was receiving my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My father's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're gonna support whatever decision the school made. See, my mother knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. 
even more important than education, even more important than a career. But the sad reality is many people might go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they will return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their their retirement plan. And in essence, we sometimes force our children to do the same. Think about this. Our parents putting more emphasis upon their children, getting their homework done on a daily basis, getting a better grade, getting into a good university. Or should Christian parents be putting the most emphasis upon their children following Jesus. Nothing is more important than following Christ. But can I be honest with you? I was not happy about my mom's decision. She wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there, I quickly took over the drug scene and the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs. But they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me with the love of Christ. And I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta and I told them to get out. And here's the interesting thing. They weren't telling me I was living in sin. They weren't preaching at me. But just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me. And I told them to leave. And I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. Before my dad left... He wanted to give me something, and it was his very first Bible. Had the notes in the margins, he was all dog-eared, and I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. I didn't even want him to think that I actually might read the Bible. But my father is a bit persistent, and he left it on my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible And I threw it in the trash. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mother began to pray a bold prayer. God, 
do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would literally spend hours every morning in her prayer closet on her knees, reading the Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know, those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list, home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. 
Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, he kept adding to this list. And this list is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block and I happened to pass by this garbage can and I looked at this can and it was overflowing with rubbish and I thought this is my life I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago my father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. Something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the word of God. I wasn't even thinking that this will be the answer to some of my problems. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A few days later, I was called to the nurse's office. 
the prison guards handcuff me, chain my hands around my waist, shackle my feet together. I shuffle into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life that I was facing. But news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed. I was in my prison cell all by myself. And honestly, just contemplating the complete mess that I've made of my life. I lie there and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There is graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still... He still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I said a sinner's prayer And then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. That's far from the truth. God was convicting me of my idols, which were many. The obvious one was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that idol. Over time, God kept bringing to mind other idols, other dependencies, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, which seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality and he gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding 
biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, his word, and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous saying such relationship. I wanted my cake and eat it too. Who needs to change if we don't have to? So I went through the whole Bible. I was looking for any shred of evidence, any type of a blessing for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find any, which meant I was at a turning point and a decision had to be made either abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship, how? by freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the months and the weeks of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First of all, I learned that abstaining from sex is actually possible. That might sound weird to you, but for years as a non-Christian, the world kept telling me that it's not possible, but it actually is, who knew? (laughs) Second, I learned that that actually abstaining from sex is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex, even for a little while, that actually my sexuality does not have to be, actually shouldn't be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true. But don't we as sinners, don't we like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore, God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But you know, after reading the Bible several times, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. 
You see, my identity shouldn't be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I thought before I had become a Christian that if I were to become a Christian that I would have to become a heterosexual. That somehow the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to put to death my sin nature every day. So actually, heterosexuality is not the goal. Because if you think about it, God never says, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations. God never promises you that when you come to Christ, you'll never be tempted again. No, change is not the absence of temptations. But change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. So as I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, and I told them I think God's calling me into ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it, I tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. Do the math. I had some slim pickings in prison, but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody, so amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. (laughs) I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? (laughs) I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to get my master's um, in, uh, in exegesis in 20, 2007, and in 2014, 
I was able to uh, receive my doctorate of ministry and, um, in 2014 from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minneapolis. But back in 2011, I had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. Um, actually, you know, as, as you know, I'm coming from the U.S., U.S., um, and I have a policy. I never travel alone. As a single man, um, I know that, um, I mean, anyone in ministry, they have a, a bullseye on their back, on their forehead, on their chest, everywhere. Um, and uh, so I know, I actually have a policy. I never travel alone. And as a single man, unmarried, um, I, actually, my mother travels with me. So my mother's here. She's in the front row there. You can say hi to her later. She's my... She's my hero, she's my prayer warrior, and um, so she's much of the reason um, behind of, uh, when I think of that persistent widow, uh, that was my mother in desperation, uh, seeking the heart of God. And so she's here, but we wrote this book together. Um, she wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote, chap- she wrote the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, uh, because we want to tell you from our own voice the same story, same situation, told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, and the un- unique interwoven chapters, alternating narratives, and the best part is how God and his power and his grace brought us all back together. Uh, this book now is in seven different languages um, we have, I think we did bring a few, we have Chinese, Korean, Spanish. Um, uh, and so this is the funny thing. Uh, this is why it's so interesting when there's, uh, there's always, you know, kinks in the plan when you come, right? The enemy just wants to just confuse, destroy, and, and kill. And, and um, so on, on our way here yesterday from Chicago to Dublin to here, um, our books got lost. So they're somewhere, uh, maybe in Dublin, maybe somewhere else, we don't know. Uh, we're hoping they're here. However, the good news is St. Andrew's Bookstore has some in the, so you go in here, the back corner there, uh, they have a bunch of uh, the, my, my uh, the, the first book, Holy Six, I'm sorry, uh, Out of a Far Country, uh, a handful of those, and then a bunch of the Holy Sexuality we have as well. And I think there's going to be a book signing maybe after the part two. I'm going to go back there and we'll do a book signing then. But the uh, interesting thing is the, the first book, Out of Far Country, it's, it's really our memoir. But, but we wrote it essentially not just to tell you our story. We wanted to communicate um, just God's truth through our, our narrative. Just as the Bible, most of the Bible actually is narrative genre. Not just to tell you a simple story, not just tell you about how God works through his people, but actually to communicate theology through the telling of stories. So that was our goal, but we never thought that our memoir would be used as a textbook in several Christian high schools in the U.S. Never thought about that, but it makes sense. Our youth and young adults are being flooded with resources on sexuality, almost all from a non-Christian worldview. And there's so few resources that we can give to our youth, give to our young adults, that they'll read. It's very readable. 
that will not only tell you but show you what biblical sexuality is. And so families are using it to communicate the goodness of sexuality. Um, and, you know, I truly, truly believe that the job to teach sex education actually shouldn't belong primarily in the hands of the schools. Amen? It also, and you know whose hands it rests in? It should be the primary responsibility. Whose responsibility is that? Parents, mothers, and fathers. And yet, because of our fear, because of feeling uncomfortable, we have been silent. And we have forfeited this responsibility into the hands of the world, into the hands of Hollywood, into the hands of internet, and they've taken it gladly. I think it's time we take it back. It's time we take it back, amen? And so parents are using this, and actually I'm gonna add something to this. It's not only the responsibility of parents, you know who else? Grandparents. I'm gonna make everyone feel uncomfortable here. You know why, grandparents? You have too much time on your hands. (laughs) But also, grandparents, think back when you were teenagers. How much did you listen to your parents then? Maybe, grandparents, you have more of a listening ear to your grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it for the glory of God? Are we using it to expand the kingdom of heaven? Or are we squandering that? So go ahead. Spoil your grandkids, but add to that, talk to them about sexuality. One time when I was speaking, my parents and I, so we will speak at churches, and one time after we shared our testimony, there was this grandmother that made a beeline toward the book table, and she's like, I need 10 books. I was like, wow, you just need one. She's like, no, young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm going to mail them every one a book. I'm going to read it with them, and then I'm going to study with them and discuss it with them. A grandmother. That's a grandmother that's actually taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to not just expose, we're not exposing our kids, we are equipping our kids to live in 2019 to, to, to equip them on biblical sexuality. My newest book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story actually furthers this concept and really tells us You know, we spent a lot of time, you know, if you've ever heard, if you've heard anything on sexuality, maybe from the pulpit or from other Christians, sometimes it might seem like this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But you know, we cannot live a Christian life simply on God's no. What is God's yes? So I wrote this book. And although it's kind of focused on this topic of same-sex relationships, same-sex desires and temptations, the truth is that holy sexuality is good news for all. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage. So my book essentially is a continuation from my first book where I introduced this concept holy sexuality, and I knew that there was a time that I needed to expand this. You see, our first book that I wrote with my mom is, was a book really for the heart. The second book is for the head and for the hands. We need to think right before we do right, because here's what we often do. We want to rush into doing right. We, just, we need to just love, you might hear from people. 
But you know, oftentimes, when they just love, and you look at their definition of love, it is far from the biblical definition of love. You know, there's many different loves. There's a worldly love, there's a biblical love, and yet we need to love as God loved. And, and here's the reality. Love must always be rooted in truth. First Corinthians 13, that love rejoices in truth. And when it doesn't rejoice in truth, actually it isn't love at all. There's many books on homosexuality and that focus upon what we shouldn't do. There's other books that focus upon how to love, but never begin in grounding that love in truth. And what we needed to do is actually not just look at the biblical text that tell us what we shouldn't do, but look at theology to see, well, what is it that the whole breadth of scripture tells us about sexuality? And there's a lot. Actually, my subtitle, I wanted it to be Sex Design Relationships Shaped by Biblical and Systematic Theology, but my publisher shot me down. I don't know why. I really don't know why. They said no one would buy it, and I said, I would buy it. They said, well, you're unique. That was nice of them, unique. Because I know theology has a bad name. I'm not a theologian, you might say. Actually, that's not really true. You know what theology means? Theology is essentially, theos in Greek means God. Logos actually literally means word, but it can also mean truth or saying. So it's the truth of God or knowledge of God. If you are a Christian, you have knowledge of God. That makes you a theologian. Actually, I argue that atheists are theologians. They're just bad theologians. So it's not a matter of whether you are a theologian or not. The matter is whether you're a good theologian or not. So theology is actually a good thing. So how, what is the theology of sexuality? So we have this concept of holy sexuality. You know, so in my time of, of teaching, and, and, and I uh, speak with my parents, we have, I have actually the blessing of uh, speaking with my parents, um, and it's amazing how God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, as a two-generational ministry. My father's not traveling with me uh, this, week, this, this trip. He's at home holding down the fort. But we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. But we travel around, and, and, and we often get stories, people coming to us to and telling about, you know, uh, you know, their, their, their issues with their friends, their loved ones, or their, or their child. And there was one time I remember where this mother came up to me, and I could see it on her face. She was just barely holding it together. She came up to me, and just, it was like the dam broke. She started weeping. I mean, it was just this heavy, it was, it felt like she was just, had been holding it in for months. She came to me, and I mean, in those situations, like, all I could do is, you know, just put your hand, put my hand on her and just listen. And just sit. After some time, she was finally able to get out a few words, and she said, I wish my son was just normal. I listened some more. She sobbed, and she continued and told her about how she had two kids, two boys, one had walked away from God, 
just came out to her a few months ago. Why can't my son just be like my other son, normal? And I asked her about her other son, and she said, my other son, it was an older son, and she said, um, you know, he's about to have a child. And I was like, oh, wow, congratulations. First grandchild, and I asked, how long has your older son been married? And she's like, oh, no, he's not. Somehow in her grieving, her moral compass was off. That somehow in her idea of right and wrong, normal and unnormal, she thought that her gay son was not okay, but her fornicating son was. Like some today, this grieving mother equated normal, that is all different various forms of heterosexuality, including extramarital relationships, somehow with being normal, moral, and good. For decades, the aim of some even Christian counseling has been to, for those with unwanted same-sex attractions, was to help them develop or pursue a heterosexual potential. A heterosexual potential. And that might seem logical because, I mean, if if we say, well, homosexuality is not the will of God, therefore must be. Heterosexuality must be. However, does the Bible, which is our guide, does the Bible actually promote and wholly bless every various form of heterosexual relationship? Because if we think about it, heterosexuality is a pretty broad definition. I could define it as being sexually attracted to some of the opposite sex, being sexually intimate with someone or anyone of the opposite sex. That's pretty broad, so broad that I could be actually sleeping with half a dozen women, and that's considered heterosexual, right? I could be a married man, and I'm cheating on my wife with another woman. That's also considered heterosexual. I could even be an unmarried man and I'm cohabitating with my girlfriend. We've been together maybe even for several years and we even have a couple children together. That's also considered heterosexuality. Those three scenarios that I gave you, and I could actually give you many, many more, are all sinful in God's eyes, but heterosexual. God would never say that this is my standard when it includes sin. So it is too broad, too broad. And in our world of infinite shades of gray, in a world that celebrates ambiguity, we as Christians should not be ambiguous as well. And yet, some Christians would actually consider those success stories. Success stories for people who have unwanted same-sex attractions to pursue their heterosexual potential. Let me give you an illustration. So another time I was speaking, it was in Canada, and this pastor came to me. He was a young adult's pastor, and he was so excited telling me about, well, you know, I have this young man that I've worked with for several years. He came from a similar background as mine, came to Christ, coming out of same-sex relationships, and he wanted to get married one day to a woman. So this young adult's pastor said, well, if he wants to get married to a woman, I better help him to develop these heterosexual feelings if he wants to get married. And so if he was going through some type of counseling, And one day they were driving down the highway. And in the US, you know, we have a lot of billboards. I don't know if you have, you know, I'm assuming you do, billboards. And 
The billboards are not always very, how do I say, Christian. So there was this billboard that had this scantily clad woman on it. And while they're driving by, the pastor was on the driver's side. And um, I guess that would be the driver's side here and the passenger here. And the pastor was here and this person who was kind of going through this counseling and come out of same-sex relationships looked at the billboard and he said, looked at the lady, scantily clad, and he said, wow, she's really hot. And at that moment, the pastor was a bit shocked because he was telling me, like in any other situation, I would have told this young man and rebuked him, told him that's wrong. Uh, Don't look at women in that way. But then this young pastor thought and he said, oh, we actually celebrate it. The objectification of any person's body, whether woman or man, is always wrong. Amen? Lust is lust. And lust is sin. So by simply saying that heterosexuality is right, without any qualification, we could, as Christians, imply a tacit endorsement of all various forms of heterosexual immorality listed above. Certainly not all form, not every form of heterosexual relationship would be sinful that I just mentioned above or mentioned before. You might be thinking, but wait, marriage between a man and woman, that is blessed by God and that's heterosexual. Yes, it is a form of heterosexual relationship, but not representative of all. Marriage between a man and a woman is not representative of all the different various forms of heterosexual relationships. And neither is all forms of heterosexual relationships equivalent to marriage between a man and a woman. If you, we were to, like, if this was, you know, I'd like to diagram it out. So but this is like all the different various forms of heterosexual relationships, all the different types in here. Marriage is right here. This would be blessed by God, but not all the rest. Not everything else. So we see it's, it's too broad. So bottom line is by broadly affirming heterosexuality, we could be inadvertently endorsing sin. So if it's not heterosexuality, it's not homosexuality, then what is that? I mean, because we think that's our only two options, heterosexual and homosexuality. But is it really our only option? Because if you look at these terms and how they were created, do you realize that before the mid-1800s, we did not have those words? Not to say that we didn't have this concept, because oftentimes you will hear from kind of uh, affirming, uh, gay-affirming or uh, progressive Christians who will say, oh, well, they, we didn't have that concept before the eight, mid-1800s. That, actually, that is not true. We didn't have the word for it. We knew the concept. We didn't have that word, but when this word was birthed, It was in in the time of the Romantic period, kind of right toward the end, the Romantic period where basically it was celebrating our emotions and our desires. Because before that was kind of the Industrial Revolution where everything was like mechanical, everything was about facts, kind of, you know, feelings are bad. It was getting back to a Romantic period, you might be familiar, like with art. It's most known for art and music. I'm a classical pianist, and so I love the Romantic period. Those are my favorite musicians. Mozart, Mendelssohn, etc. I mean, it, it's, it's so amazing how they communicate and what they're, we're trying to get back in tune with our desires. But you can take that to the extreme where desires are everything. 
where almost desires is the determiner of truth, where it's no longer sola scriptura as we, that was kind of the reformers, right? Our clock Christ, sola scriptura, but now it's sola experientia. It's only our experience that determines truth. So this is where this concept of sexual orientation, heterosexuality, homosexuality was birthed. Whereas before that, we were just trying to talk about this concept of the behavior or the desires, same-sex behavior, same-sex desires, opposite-sex desires, opposite-sex behavior. But when we created this terms, these terms, it wasn't just describing the desires or the behaviors or the experience. What happened in the mid-1800s is they created a new category of personhood. So this is who you are, and I'll be talking about that more tomorrow in the, uh, in the I don't know what they call that, the special, special tent. I think tomorrow afternoon I'm going to be talking more about that. But really, so what is holy sexuality? Holy sexuality, when I, so if it's not heterosexuality, it's not homosexuality, what is it? I think we need to do away with this paradigm, this secular paradigm that is rooted in not talking about simply what you do or what you feel, but now it's rooted in who you are, and that is something that we should reject. Sexuality is not who you are, but how you are. So if it's not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, then what is it? It's holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? Holy sexuality is simply two paths. When you read through the full counsel of God, there's only two paths that God has provided for us to be on how to live in regards to your sexuality. First path is if you are not married, you're single, how do you live regarding your sexuality? How do you live faithful to God? You live by being sexually abstinent. If you're no longer single and you are married, how do you live faithful to God? You live faithful to God by being faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So holy sexuality is quite simply chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And what I realize is there is no term for both of those, so I create a term and I call it holy sexuality. And really, I'm not presenting anything new or monumental. It's simply from Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of the biblical witness, only two paths that align with God's standard for sexual expression. And my goal for kind of using this term, there, there was nothing to, to, to kind of, that covered both of those, and I came up with this term. Really, the, the goal for this was to simplify and disentangle the complex and confusing conversation around sexuality. Because the, the truth is, God's standard for everyone, everyone, whether you're male or female, young or old, whether you have opposite sex attractions or same sex attractions, is that holy sexuality is really good news for all, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. But you might ask, what's the harm? I mean, if I have a friend, a young lady that she has desires, is struggling with these desires for the same sex, but she wants to marry to a young man. What's the harm? I mean, wouldn't it make logical sense for me to help her to develop sexual desires or romantic desires for the opposite sex? Isn't that the best way to prepare her for marriage? If there's a young man who has, who's struggling and, 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 and resisting same-sex temptations, isn't, wouldn't our goal be to help him to develop opposite sex attractions? But here's the truth. 
sexual desires should not be the determiner for marriage. Actually, sexual desires should not be the bedrock of any marriage. Sexual desires is important. I'm not saying that it isn't good to have it involved, but it shouldn't be the bedrock, the foundation. When I disciple young men, you know, the, my, my students at Moody, some have same-sex attractions, many don't. And many of them want to marry, especially since where I teach is Moody Bridal Institute. And at our school, these kids, they want to be serious, and they're not going to date as the world dates. So if they're going to meet someone, they, they want to say, you know, is this, are we going to, we're not going to, you know, do as the world does. And if this is not really going to go anywhere, then maybe we shouldn't necessarily waste our time. But so they, they, they want to be serious about it. They want to just, they don't want to just kind of toy with this concept. And, and many of them want to marry. And they tell me I want to marry. But my focus for these young men, as they get married, to prepare them for marriage, is not to help them develop more or stronger sexual desires for the opposite sex. Would that make sense? Is that how you prepare for marriage, to develop stronger sexual relationships for the opposite sex? I hope not. Then how do we? I think the best way to prepare a young man, a young woman to marry is simply to point them to Christ. The best way for a young man to prepare prepare for marriage is to be godly. A best way for a young woman to prepare for marriage is to be godly. Because actually that'll prepare you to be single or married. In my study, writing my new book, I I came across this wonderful quote, and I've yet to find out exactly who wrote it. But it is attributed to a missionary. She was single all her life. And oftentimes, people ask her, don't you want to get married? Which, by the way, if you are married and you have some single Christian friends, Don't ask them that question, do you want to get married? (laughs) Because most of the time, the answer is, of course. But it's not God's timing yet. So she kind of got tired of answering that question. Instead, you know what she said? She said, I want my life so hid in Christ that for a man to find me, he must find Christ first. I think that's a wonderful way to live. And that has been my motto, how I live. When people ask me, do you want to marry one day? Yes, I'm open to that. That's not my main goal in life. That's not what I think is the answer to being happy, but I'm open to it. I'm 48 years old, 49, actually this month, scary, 49 years old, I'm single. 
I'm finding contentment as a single man, realizing that there is, I can be undivided my devotion to the Lord as a single man, but I am open to getting married. But here's the way I live. I want my life to be so hidden Christ that for a woman to find me, she must find Christ first. Holy sexuality is chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage, a gift from God, which is really good news for all. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you, Lord God, that you have made us holy through Christ, positional sanctification, Lord, that it was nothing that we did or ever could do, but it was something that is done by the only one who is holy, who is your son, Jesus, who imputed to us, who made us righteous because he is the righteous one. And yet, Lord, we know of this practical sanctification, progressive sanctification that is over time, that that we are being made holy as well. And Lord, we look with anticipation for that time where we will be one time wholly sanctified in the last day when we are fully in communion with you, Lord God. But in the meantime, Lord, give us the boldness and ability to be holy for your name's sake. And we ask this in the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. And the people of God said, amen. Thank you. So I'm going to continue on at 3 o'clock. Uh, I think it's around 2, am I right? 3 o'clock. Uh, it's around 2.36. Um, and we will, I'm going to continue on on, on a talk. Uh, it's con- from my new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. I'm calling it a Christian response to homosexuality, where we're going to kind of just, I'm going to give you some really practical things. How do we love, share Christ with our loved ones in the gay community? Um, there are some books over in, in the corner there. And again, I think my mother, she's going to go over there and she's going to sign some of those books, pre-sign some of those for you. But we will be back here at 3 o'clock. And also, so you know, there's also a Q&A later tonight. I think it's at 7 p.m. in the, um, I don't know, there's some shed over there, a white shed. Um, I know, they're, they're, like, there's all, they're all sheds. Um, it's called something really special, and I'm forgetting. Uh, but it's 7 p.m. What is it called? Sh- thank you. Showcase Lounge. Showcase Lounge at 7 p.m., and it's a Q&A. It's going to be three of us, um, Andy, Christy, and me. Uh, and it's kind of an apologetics thing, and they're doing this throughout the week. But I'll be there, and it's a great time to maybe even invite some of your friends in the evening since it's easier to come maybe in the evening. But I'm also doing another uh, talk tomorrow. So see you back maybe in about 22 minutes. God bless you.